0: Hi, I'm Francis Hellyer, and welcome to my brand new podcast, Metaverse. This is a podcast for the future-minded, a series for anyone on the hunt for the next big thing and all its possibilities and implications. This is Tomorrow's World Today. With each episode, I will chat to those at the top of their fields, from futurists in crypto and space travel, to forecasters in business and tech. Together, we will ask the question, what's next? Today, I'm joined by Eden Yago core contributor to Sovereign. Founded last year, the decentralized blockchain trading and lending platform allows members to trade with leverage and earn yield by lending. Their mission is to build a full suite of decentralized tools to bridge Bitcoin with other aspects of the traditional economy and DeFi. Before this, he founded several other companies in the crypto space, including CementDAO and Effifyte. A passionate advocate for mass adoption of open finance, he's keen to continue pioneering innovative financial products as part of a borderless economy. Iago, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So let's dive straight in. Can you tell our listeners a bit about Sovereign and where the idea came about?
1: Yeah, so um, 12 years ago, Bitcoin was invented. And it provided this really phenomenal new idea. Which was that you could have property rights in the digital world. Because if you think, you know, people have tried to offer all kinds of explanations about what blockchain is and what Bitcoin is and what is the great innovation. But I think at core, it's actually quite simple, which is that we had this extremely and growing, you know, we had this realm, which was of growing importance in which we couldn't have property rights, right? So Bitcoin created this way that you could have something that is digital that you can truly own you can truly own maybe in a way which is actually better than anything that you could own in the physical world. Because in the physical world, your ownership of anything is dependent on either your ability to kind of make sure that nobody steals your bicycle or your reliance uh, on um, a set of government parties that are supposed to deal with whoever does steal your bicycle. Uh, and so you're very dependent on the actions of others, whereas with Bitcoin, you can own something where you are truly sovereign. So you don't you don't actually hand over the responsibility and the sovereignty that is involved with that ownership to someone else. You don't rely on anyone else, uh, a government or a bank, in order to safeguard things for you. You can safeguard things yourself using uh, your private key, your, your, your code, your cryptography. And so in a way, Bitcoin was the first thing that you could truly own. What I think that does is it opens up an entirely new realm for us as individuals to, to have a degree of sovereignty, to have a degree of self-determination and self-reliance that we previously maybe you know, within lived experience have never had. Uh, in a world which is becoming, you know, more and more reliant on intermediaries and bureaucracies, And then what happened over the next 12 years was that people who started using Bitcoin ended up finding themselves using intermediaries all over again. Um, and, and, And so there was always this desire that if you wanted to trade, transact, lend, borrow, engage in any type of economic activity with Bitcoin that you wouldn't have to go through a intermediary. You wouldn't have to reintroduce yourself into sort of like the old world, but you could do it entirely through decentralized processes that were as decentralized as Bitcoin itself. In other words, extending the Bitcoin protocol from just being a monetary protocol to being a financial economic protocol as well. And so that's the goal of Sovereign. And that is what Sovereign is working on, on, on improving on an ever-going basis. It's bringing that sort of second leg of, of sovereignty to Bitcoin, um, allowing you not only to hold Bitcoin and control Bitcoin, but also to engage with Bitcoin uh, without
0: intermediaries. When did you get into cryptocurrency and realize it was really going to take off?
1: I uh, came across Bitcoin for the first time in 2011. I um, was reading articles in network science because I was... At the time, I was working on a company that I had helped to found where we were doing machine learning or more like neural network, application of neural networks to diagnostic systems. So I was reading a lot of, of networking science at the time, came across the Satoshi White paper, which is completely out of left field. And it totally screwed up my life because pretty much immediately I emailed everyone I knew to tell them that they had to take a look at this because it was probably really the most important thing they would see. And it would help define the rest of um, our lives uh, as this technology played out. And, and I actually, uh, about six months later, quit the startup to go sort of become fully engaged in the, in the world of digital assets and, and Bitcoin. And the reason I did it is because I, I, I do think I mean, there, there were basically two big ideas for me. One is I w- I've been convinced for a long time and we're seeing this play out that more and more of our lives are going to be intermediated or effectively lived in one way or another in a digital space. In fact, the conversation that you and I are having now, right? Like, I don't come to your studio and, and I'm participating in your podcast. Like, we're having a call. You could be anywhere in the world. I am having. I could be anywhere in the world. And over Zoom, we're interacting. So this idea that more and more of our lives are going to be spent in these, let's call it cyberspace, the metaverse, right? Digital, The digital realm. And this is, this is very exciting and it's very cool, but there's a very, very big disadvantage there. There's a very big problem, which is that, uh, as I previously mentioned, there, there was no and, and hasn't been a way to introduce property rights into this digital realm. And why is that important? Well, at base, property rights are effectively the, you know, if you were to try to boil down all law, all rights, to to what they are, it's effectively property rights, right? So thou shalt not kill is property rights, right? I have the rights to my body. You are not allowed to coerce or infringe my body. Then my property, right? Thou shalt not covet your your, your neighbor's ass, right? (laughs) I've spent a lot of time feeding this ass. Um, You can't just take it from me. Property rights, right? Um, And so really the vast majority of human interaction is in one way or another a reflection and a understanding that people have the right to themselves to the things that they create into the things that they are given that other people created and societies that have weak property rights don't end up doing very well they look more like north korea or soviet uh russia or you know somalia and societies that have strong property rights end up looking more like Singapore or Netherlands or the United States. And what we had in cyberspace was a situation where we ended up developing a world which was, you know, the internet started out with so much hope and with so much um, idealism, right? Uh, And then it, it ended up sort of degenerating into this space where they, you know, you've got a few feudal lords. You've got Jeff Bezos and you've got the, 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 the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. And everything that we do, they own. They own our private uh, information. They own our access. They can, they can cancel us at any time. Um, it's extremely feudal. And the reason it's feudal is because the internet was bereft of property rights. So, so the, the, the really interesting thing about Bitcoin for me was the nexus of, on the one hand, I was convinced that this was, the, that that the that, that our lives, our, our, our digital lives, was the future. And on the other hand, I felt it was very, very important that we construct a future which was going to be progressive rather than regressive. And and, 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 and at the nexus of that was uh, this idea of, of, of digitized uh, property rights or Bitcoin.
0: You're a keen advocate for open finance. Why is this so important to you? Well...
1: In a way, you know, I come back to this idea of property rights being at the basis of all rights. You know, the Americans have a saying: "Money makes the world go round," and they're not wrong. Part of my family went through the Holocaust. That part of the family were Polish Jews. The survival rate for Polish Jews was one percent over the course of World War II. In other words, the fact that I'm alive is a is a statistical anomaly. You know, it's a one in one hundred shot. And the reason my family managed to survive was because they had the foresight early on, or they were lucky enough early on to liquidate their assets and turn them into gemstones, which they could carry effectively in their person uh, and use it to bribe their way to survival over the course of a few years. So what saved them was the fact that they had recourse to some degree of financing that they could maintain that they they couldn't have been taken away from them, um, at least easily, It wasn't a bank account. It was something that they could hide. Then later, I grew up in apartheid South Africa. My family were associated with the anti-apartheid ANC wing. And part of my family had to flee South Africa uh, due to this, you know, they were designated as terrorists. And I ended up uh, getting money to them because we managed to acquire some Krugerrands which are gold coins and I because I was a young kid wasn't searched at the airport so they would send me a loan overseas to to get money out to my family now so so I grew up with like um you know uh, growing, you know suckling on the teeth of an understanding which I think maybe a lot of people don't have where for me this abstract concept of how your financial sovereignty is the key to the, all of the rest of your freedoms was made very very bitter and we live in a world where we've seen you know zimbabwe and venezuela and argentina and turkey and cyprus have all had bank confiscations and all have had inflation and we in europe or the united states wherever it is that probably most of your audience reside tends to have the assumption that this isn't going to happen to us and yet That's not entirely clear, right? I mean, in 1936, the United States confiscated everyone's gold. This is the land of the free, home of the brave. you know, The land of freedom told everyone that they weren't allowed to be economically sovereign in that way. In 1971, Nixon took the entire world off the gold standard. And right now, 40% of all the dollars that that are currently circulating in existence were printed over the last year. So I hope that, People in sort of what we consider the more developed world don't need to go through the harsh lessons of taking this abstract idea and, 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 and having to come face-to-face with it in the most concrete way. But I think it is always the case that the best defense is being well-prepared. Uh, and so because I think that the, the basis for really you know societal progress uh, all the wealth, the riches, the advancement, and the rights that we see uh, for ourselves in the developed world come down to, to our respect for these rights. I think introducing them, to every, introducing them to the digital realm is means that for the developed world, they will be introduced into the world into which more and more of us are moving. But from an open finance perspective, it means that all of us, people from Nigeria to Honduras to New York will have access to it always.
0: The Bitcoin community has grown massively over the last couple of years. How crucial is it that it remains open and innovative and doesn't shut itself off from the rest of the world? This
1: is a very hard problem. And I think it ultimately comes down to the incentives. And the reason I say it's a hard problem is because from the outset, it, it should work, right? So Bitcoin, for example, has been around for 12 years, has not become corrupted. And I think we'll continue to manage to avoid that type of corruption. On the other hand, other systems, I think the jury is still out. So, for example, Ethereum has done remarkable things and and has, you know, there's a huge amount like open finance was to a great extent invented on Ethereum. But there's a sort of move fast and break things attitude which means on, on Ethereum, for example, where we, I think there's potentially a lack of caution around introducing systemic points of, 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 of centralization, which are effectively places where you reintroduce corruption, you reintroduce uh, elites. An example of this are uh, what are commonly known as stablecoins. Cryptocurrencies are famously volatile. Stablecoins are cryptocurrencies which are designed not to be volatile. And the Primary way that this has been accomplished is somebody has dollars in a bank account. Against each dollar in the bank account, they create a token on the blockchain, and then people can freely trade these tokens, right? And you know that the token is worth a dollar because there's a dollar in a bank account. So it's, there, there are other ways of doing it, but that's the most common way of doing it, and it's, and it's a fully centralized way of doing it. The problem with that, of course, is that the person who owns the bank account and is issuing the the, the, the coins has complete control over the system and is completely exposed to any regulatory pressure that may come their way as well now this has become a problem of growing a growing systemic problem in that initially a lot of value was held in there and then became you know the, a primary a lot of the trading was done with these coins because you know they represented dollars but now if you look at the open finance, the, the decentralized finance world on Ethereum, it's you know what people refer to as DeFi. The bulk of collateral in these, these DeFi platforms, right? Lending platforms, trading platforms, is now in the form of decentralized stable coins. And so they now have a huge amount of influence over the trajectory of the entire Ethereum ecosystem. They have a huge amount of influence over the trajectory of any given debt. They could bankrupt the entire system, or if the system forks and the community wants to go in one way, but these, system, these, these projects want to go in a, in a different way, they can effectively force the hand of the rest of the community because they can say, well, you can choose to have a different chain, but we're not going to recognize the assets on that chain. And so all of your assets will go to zero. And so in the same way that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have an official claim on us but we can't escape him because you know whatsapp and facebook and instagram are such powerful network effects when you have a systemic asset it's got such a powerful network effect that it provides the creators or the issuers of that asset with outsized power now there are other examples of things like this Uh, like for example i'm very concerned about how proof of stake might play out um And 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 building strong governance, which is hard to corrupt or or incorruptible, is a very very hard problem. So I think my answer to that is I don't think there's a magic bullet. But why? But if we want to create a world that is reliably incorruptible for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren, then that needs to be an explicit goal of the work that we're doing and the projects that we're doing. And we need to be extremely wary of a move fast and break things um rationalization around well you know let's innovate faster uh because because we're already introducing sort of uh corruptions into the system
0: so if we look at a country like el salvador that's accepted bitcoin as an official currency do you think other countries will follow suit and what does that mean for the world
1: so i do think that other countries will follow suit in one way or another you know i've already had conversations with um people who are engaged with other countries or, you know, are working with other countries where other countries look to be following suit. Um, You know, so I've spoken to officials and I've had the opportunity to speak to some prime ministers of of some smaller countries. And the reason that they're doing it is because in the same way that Bitcoin provides sovereignty to an individual, it also provides sovereignty to a country. And many of the smaller countries are effectively, you know, very limited in the amount of sovereignty that they have they are in the orbit of of larger powers particularly the united states they are forced into various uh frameworks by organizations like the imf the oecd uh, the fatf etc large there's a large number of of very powerful global bureaucracies out there that are effectively accountable to no one but have a lot of influence and so I suspect that we will see more and more organizations of all sizes, and that's, you know, like corporates like Tesla and also countries like El Salvador or Iceland or, or others who are uh, looking to engage with a credibly neutral global form of property, a credibly neutral form of value that they can hold in their central banks, that they can allow their banking system to
0: rely on, that they can allow their citizens to transact with. And in terms of futurism, where do you think we're going to be in the next 10 years?
1: Oh, well, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of change in the world. I think the global monetary financial system is going to change a great deal. Um, I think we are now in an economy which has been scleroic for at least a decade, probably more. Basically, all of the growth that we've seen uh, from an economic perspective across the world, and particularly in the developed world, can be accounted for in the form of increased debt and money printing. This is not the sign of a healthy economy. And at the same time, more our lives have become more and more virtual, and the physical, uh, the providence of, of of where we live is is being reduced. Now, to me, the very big change. That this implies, from a sort of geopolitical social perspective, is that I think we're starting to see a significant diminishment of the prominence of the nation state. The nation state, as it was conceived and has a, as it has existed for the last two hundred years, has been a highly territorial concept based on industrial technologies, right? Technologies where industrial scale was important, where distribution systems, physical distribution systems were important, where um, physical uh, distribution of communication through broadcast and print were important. And so there were very, very significant unifying factors that tied people to specific geographies. That has changed very, very rapidly and is continuing. That The change is only accelerating. And so the logic of having our societies structured along these geographic, territorial, uh, highly centralized uh, frameworks is is making much less sense. And at the same time, because these structures don't make sense anymore, in a way, they're they're bankrupt. So they, they became conceptually bankrupt, and now they're becoming fiscally and monetarily bankrupt because in order to maintain the status quo, they need, to, you know, they need to run faster and faster just to stay in place. So they're spending more and more to maintain the, 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 the current status quo. This, again, is, is not a sustainable situation. And so the question is, what's going to replace it? And I think an open financial world where um, people are able to work regardless of where their geography is, um are less interested and employers are less interested in the geography of the people that they're working with and where the primacy of these sort of nationally printed currencies is also reduced looks very much like a world in which bitcoin and and decentralized governance play a very very significant role this is an extremely disruptive process right Uh, if and it becomes more disruptive if the current institutions, the status quo institutions, uh, fight violently against change. Right? If they, if they are extremely concerned to make sure that, that, that their status doesn't change, then we're going to have uh, a very, very disruptive rather than a smooth transition. However, I have to say I'm quite optimistic in that it appears that Um, the United States and many other countries as well are uh, actually proving more adaptable and more open to a smooth transition uh, than I, you know, initially expected. And so it might be that over the next 10, 15 years, this transition from a regulatory perspective and from our lifestyles perspective will happen actually quite smoothly. People stop using banks, people stop relying so much on their national identity and will start Thinking more in terms of the already very well established sort of tribal identities that we're seeing in crypto communities will be less driven by. um, Well, I mean, I think a lot of sort of our sense of community has actually diminished a great deal. I think we actually have an opportunity to rebuild a sense of community, and we're seeing it happen primarily online. But perhaps it will be, you know, uh, uh, less polarized when it's less attached to. The, the defunct politics of, of particular geographies and work will be more open of course this is also going to be disruptive to a lot of professions and a lot of wealthy people in the developed world if they're going to have to now start competing on a more a global, global basis, basis. Um, and so nothing's going to be completely smooth but i think there's a pathway to that which is smoother than maybe i would have initially anticipated
0: Well, I mean, that's a really positive, futuristic way of looking at the world. Let's hope your vision of the future really does come true. If we look at the things we've talked about, from decentralization and blockchain to open finance, I think it's definitely a way of spreading wealth around the world and and giving people access to tools to develop businesses and freedom from some unfortunate situations they find themselves in. So what's next for you, Yago? Well, I think for for me, I'm going to continue working on sovereign because I think
1: it's the most important thing I can be working on right now. What I am hoping that we'll be able to build over the next five years is a platform which can support this type of credibly incorruptible financial economic activity and go beyond that uh, and help. Uh, uh, provide for individual sovereignty also outside of the economic sphere. So I think the economic sphere is the base. But if we do a good job with that, then we will be able to together, to work together, to build a, a world in which uh, travel becomes um, easier again. Right, I mean, right now, I, I think we're looking towards a world in which travel is going to become more and more difficult. And, and where community, uh, it becomes easier again. Right now, community is very, very divisive. And I think a great deal of that is because it's tied to a nihilistic politics, which is sort of running out of new ideas. And so if we can use a new financial economic system to fund the endeavors of the future, then I think we can imagine a world in which optimism becomes the norm rather than sort of like the pessimistic nihilism that we have now. I grew up in the 80s uh, and the 90s, which was a very, very optimistic time. And there was an understanding that progress was possible and technological progress was possible and that globalization was possible. And I think we've lost that a little bit. I, I, I think that the loss that we have is temporary. We're in a transitionary period. We need to reimagine our social contracts and our social structures. I think sovereign is a way in which I can contribute to doing that. And if we do a good job of that, then we will return on to the path of progress uh, that reduces conflict and makes everyone happier, wealthier, and more free.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show. I, I really wish you the best of luck with Sovereign. You're doing some fantastic work there, and I'm keen to see what you come up with next. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me. Um, and maybe we can catch up sometime and see how things are going.
0: <laughs> You've been listening to Metaverse with me, Francis Hellier. Thank you to my guest, Eden Yago, for a brilliant conversation. Tweet us at MetaversePod with any suggestions or feedback. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please share a link on social media. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, metaverse.fm.